Obviously remark podcast show, the suburban horror of the Indian burial ground. America is not a young land, William S. Barrows writes in Naked Lunch. It's old and dirty and evil. Before the settlers, before the Indians, the evil was there, waiting. The same belief in old, dirty evil that drives so many of our modern ghost stories. There are haunted bridges, haunted alleyways, haunted parks, and haunted buildings parking lots, but the, but in the United States the most common and most primal haunted place is a house. house home ownership has already been entwined with the American dream. Being magnified as simple property decision in part because it's perhaps as safety and security. Haunted house is a violation of this comfort. The American dream gone horribly wrong. In the last few decades the most common cause of the haunted house is haunting and the Problem cited so frequently, it's almost become cliche, is the Indian burial ground. The Anglo translation of Indian burial lands stretches back at least as the 18th century. The revolutionary poet Philip Freneau, F-E-F-R-E-N-E-A-U, was one of the earliest to approach the scariest sacred lands with a mix of fixism and foreboding. In, 19, in the, his 1787 poem, The Indian Burial Gown, he saw the spirits as vanished Indians still hunting, feasting, and praying. Thou stranger, thou come this way, thou fool come dead commit. Observe the swelling turf, say, they do not lie, but there they sit. Be wary of the Indian burial ground, funeral warns us, for life still moves there. If it feel if if it for feeling these lands were mystical and sacred, the nineteen seventies nineteen seventy this idea was turned malevolent because foundation of a series of horror films and stories, haunted houses, its popularity stems most almost entirely from the J. Anderson's nineteen seventy two best bestseller, The Artificial Horror, the dream defining horror film based on it. Anderson's book, advertised as a true story, was based on a testimony from George and Catherine Lutz, who claimed to have gone un- undergone a harrowing experience on Long Island, New York, Hamlet, or Zanceville. When the Lutz bought their dream house, they knew it was on the site of six murders. In October of 1974, 23-year-old Ronald DeFoe Jr. shot his father, mother, two sisters and two brothers in the house. Deciding not to let this factor influence their decision, the Lutz bought the house just over a year later. But, uh, uh, but a host of unexplained occurrences took place as soon as they moved in. George began waking up every morning at 3.15am, time that different murders had happened, and those children began sleeping on their stomachs, same pose in, what, in which different victims had been found dead. The children began acting strangely and claimed to see a pair of red eyes hovering outside the bedroom. In less than a month, the Lutz abandoned the Ansville home, returning to their, leaving their possessions behind. According to Anderson, while George and Lee Catherine Lutz were trying to find out why their new home was so haunted, a member of the Ansville Historical Society revealed to them that the site of their home had been once used by the Shinnecock Indians, S H I N N E C O C K, as an enclosure for the mad 
sick, mad, and the dying. These unfortunates are penned up until they died of exposure. Anderson claimed, further claimed that the Shinnecock did not use this tract as a consecrated burial ground because they believed it to be infested with demons. But the men paranormal researchers Hans Hosler and fighting medium Ethel Johnson Mayers investigate the Anvil House. John Mayers channeled the spirit of Shinnecock Indian chief who told her the house stood on an ancient Indian burial ground. None of this held up under any kind of scrutiny, and Shintrot lived some 50 miles from Ensville. And according to the writer Rick Oslander, spent five years unearthing the facts about Ensville, the nearest human remains that have been found to date are over a mile from the house. Nor would the Shinrock or any other people have treated the sick and dying in such a callous, brutal fashion. But the entire Enfield horror narrative was, it seems, likely an elaborate hoax. In 1978, the sued two clairvoyants and several writers working on alternative histories of the home, allegedly invasion of privacy. In, Kate, in, in the course of the trial, William Weber, Robert DeVillo's detective attorney, testified that the whole tiny t- story had been concocted by him and the Lutz and that he had, been, he had provided the couple with the sentence details of the Defoe murders to substantiate their account. This is a sensational portrayal of the native burial rites were woven into this mismatch of hogwash might not be entirely surprising. What is surprising, though, is how quickly the troop of in, haunted Indian ground took root and spread throughout the rest of American culture. Haunted Indian grounds... I've appeared in Podquest 2 in Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining and countless less known novels and TV shows. Its legends have become so ambiguous it's become something of cliche. Sometimes showing up these days often as not as a punchline in comedies appearing everywhere from South Park to Rick Recreation. Stephen King's 1983 novel, Pet Sentry, is a particularly striking version of his narrative, in part because it describes in great detail the nature and function of the burial ground. Lewis Creed, the protagonist, has moved his family out to real Maine to get, take a job as a doctor at a local university. His daughter's cat is hit by a car on a nearby highway. A new neighbor his new neighbour, Crud- Crudwell, takes him to the Mammoth burial ground where the power of being dead back to life. They bury the cat and returns the next day. And I have changed me in spending a death of hell earth. After Lewis's two-year-old son is killed on the same highway, Lewis, and Colin McGrief, attempts to re-scratch him in the same manner, particularly the horrific sense. At the same time, the book, was published, it was quite typical, as scholar Reggie Bergerman points out, during the, year, the years that King was writing his petition, mean, the state of Maine was involved in a massive legal battle against the Maliset, Palascott and Pasalamakododi bands of the Wada and Aski Confederacy, beginning in 1972, the tribes sued Maine and the federal government over lands to which they would 
which they were by federal law entitled, which amounted to 6% of the land and area of the state, long inhabited by non-American Indians in Maine, a land in spirit was home to over 350,000 people who would have been needed a resettlement had the tribes been successful. Once it became clear that the claim was, had merit, the government scrambled to find a settlement that didn't involve the displacement of large amounts of non-Indian residents, only rewarding the free tribes for more than 181 million, which state their earmarked to purchase undeveloped land in Maine, along with other federal guarantees. All this history lies in the wilderness of King's novel. Early on, Creed is exploring the wilderness that is his backyard with his family and neighbourhood. Judge Codwell, when his wife, Rachel, exclaims, Honey, we, do we own this? A question that all came thought as a novel for great presses. Codwell answers, Rachel, and part of the property, oh yes. Though Lois thinks to himself when it's not quite the same thing, the tension between holding the deed of a piece of property and true ownership of the land continues throughout the book. Judy repeatedly revokes the real hand land disputes happening in Maine at the time. Through, though in King's book, it is Mi'kmaq people fighting for the land of Maine, an old distortion of Mi'kmaq people who never, who were never part of the world, were Ushi Confederacy and lived primarily in Canada, not Maine. Now the Mi'kmaq state of Maine, the government of the United States are arguing in court about who owns the land. He says at one point, who does own it? No one owns it, Lewis, not anyone. Anyone different different people lay claim to it one time for another, but no one can claim and serve a struck. Jude stresses that the power of the land predates the former owners. The Mimex knew the no knew the place. It didn't necessarily mean they made it what it was. The Mimex weren't was weren't really or weren't already here. And out is the haunted burial ground hides a certain Anxiety about the land in which Americans, specifically white middle-class Americans, live, embedded deep in the idea of home ownership, how to grow American middle-class life, is the idea that we didn't, we don't in fact own the land, but we bought time and time again in these stories. But perfectly average innocent American families are confronted by ghosts who have been preserved for centuries to remain vengeful for the damage done. Facing the ghosts and expelling them, in many of these horror stories, became a means of fighting the Indian wars of past centuries. King's novel works by playing off a burial, lamented anxiety Americans about have about the land they own. If you're willing to see this conflict over the land as the basis of many old ghost stories, it won't be surprising so much of America is haunted. This precious little land in the United States that hasn't been contested one way or another for the years. Americans live in haunted land because we have no other choice. From Ghostland, an American history in American pla- in haunted places by Colin Dickery.